Do you seek the freedom to pursue greater meaning and purpose in your life? Is there something that you're passionate about that you'd like to support by giving time, talent, or money? Do you seek a level of financial freedom to live an ideal life as you uniquely define it? Welcome to the Money and Meaning Show with Jeff Bernier, a show dedicated to helping you gain the confidence and freedom to lead a life of personal significance and help you get your actions and resources in alignment with what matters most. Hello and welcome to the Money and Meaning Show. My name is Jeff Bernier. I am your guide and your host today as we uh, on this show where we combine deep discussions about meaning and purpose and what gives you joy and combining that with wealth management topics with the goal of helping you create the clarity, the confidence, and the freedom to go pursue those things that you find most meaningful. And so today, um, you know, I'm really excited to have uh, a repeat guest today. Um, and let me set this up a little bit. Um, so Nick Murray, who is a consultant to our industry, frequently says that invest, uh, investor behavior has more impact on the long-term success or failure of an investment strategy than the investments themselves. So investor behavior has more impact on the long-term success or failure of a strategy than the investments themselves. And if you study the empirical evidence, that, that holds true. The great Benjamin Graham wrote, the investor's chief problem, even his worst enemy, is, to, is himself. And so again, today I am so pleased to have a guest who can help us behave better as investors, uh, or as the intellectual giant Austin Powers says, oh, behave. So today I welcome Dr. Daniel Crosby. Welcome, Daniel. Hey, I've never I've never been brought on right after an Austin Powers quote. This is great. <laughs> perfect, perfect. Yeah. Now, so I've followed Daniel for a long, long time. I've used a lot of his material for many, many years. Uh, he is the chief behavioral officer now at Orion Advisor uh, Solutions, and he has a varied role. Um, but I want to just before we even start, I just want to plug his two books that I'm going to bring back up at the end of the uh, show. I'm sure. Everybody who's interested in these topics should check out The Behavioral Investor and The Laws of Wealth, which I think just had its 10th anniversary. What You just had a reprint on The Laws of Wealth? Oh, it, it's a second edition, but no, it's like The Laws of Wealth is probably five years old. Five years, okay. So the two yeah. books are The Laws of Wealth and The Behavioral Investor by Dr. Daniel Crosby. So Daniel, again, welcome. And I always like to start with just a really quick uh, update on you and your family and tell the audience a little bit about yourself and, and your family. Yeah. Thanks, Jeff. Good to be here. So like you, I live outside of Atlanta. I grew up in North Alabama and love uh, the American South and it's food and literature and places. So love kind of tooling around the American South and indeed all over the world. But um, I'm a father of three young kids, have a wonderful wife who I'm on a journey to raise them with. And uh, <laughs> we're, we're doing great, man. We've we've never had more family time than we've had in the last 18 months. And we've been lucky. Uh, we've been blessed to have been healthy and to just enjoy that time together. So we're great. Thank you for asking. Yeah, well, th thanks for sharing all that. I, I heard a podcast you were on recently celebrating, I guess, the new edition of the book. And I think you were talking about, and, and for the audience that's audio only, behind Daniel, he's got a number of really nice looking guitars. So I think they mm -hmm. might, and I think I heard on the podcast, you your, your kids play music as well. So do you have like a little Partridge family band going on there in the Crosby household? 
Yeah, so I'm down here in my basement. So right over here, we've got a drum kit, we've got <laughs> keys, we've got my wife plays bass, I've got a bunch of guitars. Yeah. Uh, my daughter plays ukulele. All the kids take piano lessons. My wife is an accomplished pianist. Wow. And so she sees to it that all the kids play piano. So yes, I'm the I'm the slacker, but we do we do play uh, quite often. Okay, awesome. Uh, so tell us what a uh, a, a behavioral officer does at, at Orion. And you can talk about Orion a little bit too. Obviously I know who you guys are, but tell me what sure. you do at Orion and what does Orion do? Sure. So, you know, I, I'm sort of the embodiment of some of those quotes you talked about by Ben Graham and, and Nick Murray. You know, we understand that uh, you control what matters most as I wrote in the laws of wealth, you know, that was my very first chapter trying to help end investors take the power back and understand how central their choices and their decisions and their behavior was uh, to their financial success. And indeed, as you've already said quite quite nicely, uh, you know, their ability to do just a couple of basic things, you know, to, to set aside a little every month, to stay long term, to control their emotions, all of this uh, is a better predictor of, of eventual financial success than all the externalities that we worry about. You know, what's the president gonna do? What's the Fed gonna do? What's the economy gonna do? Well, all that stuff is of course consequential, but it's out of our control. And so we need to worry about the things that we can control. So what I do at Orion is create content, videos, and indeed technology and tools that help uh, investors make better decisions with their money. Right. Yeah. And we'll, and we'll get to some of that on the tools as well in a, in a few minutes. I, I appreciate you bringing that up as well. Yeah. So my audience here and the hero that I serve is, is generally this mid to late career executive or recently retired individual who lives now in a defined contribution world. So they don't have pensions anymore. They've got Social Security and they've got capital. And as we invest for retirement income with that capital, these behavioral mistakes can be really, really costly, which they may never recover from. So I think the subject matter has is, is become actually more important, I think, as we self-manage our own resources. And in one of your books, I don't remember which one, um, you wrote, you must invest in risk assets if you are to survive. Uh, but you are psychologically ill-equipped to invest in risk assets. So can you right. expand on both of those just a bit? Yeah, womp womp, Debbie Downer, right? So yeah, this is a, <laughs> this is a tough. Yeah, this is a, a, a tough reality. You know, I say, and that's from the laws of wealth, right? So I, I talk in that book about this sort of paradox that you know, God or nature or whatever, you know, however you think we got here, right? Like, could not have created a worse investor than you or I. You know, when you look at our wiring, our wiring is hundreds of thousands of years old. And like we were wired for immediacy and action and physical self-preservation. And we live in a time where to be successful as investors, we need to be slow and patient and deliberative and long-term. So a lot of my writing has been about sort of this mismatch between our the you know the physical apparatus with which we move through the world and and the needs of of investment markets. And so yes, I mean unless you are just staggeringly well compensated, there's no way to to make it across the financial finish line without some help from uh from the markets. 
And yet we know we're ill-equipped to do this. And so it, it becomes a conversation around what can we do to, to overcome some of those, those physical and psychological limitations. Right. And so is that what you, how would you define behavioral finance then? I mean, how does behavioral finance address this mismatch? Yeah, well, behavioral finance sort of writ large is just finance that accounts for the messiness of human behavior. You know, uh, post, post World War II, uh, there was, uh, you know, there were, we're now uh, in the 50s, right? So we, we've just had two recent world wars. We've seen what uh, technology has done for us. We've seen what physics has done for us. We're, you know, pre-space race, but it's a very sort of hard sciences type of world. And so uh, economics adopted that same physics envy, that same philosophy, yeah. and said, we're going to create uh, economic... We're going to create economic formulas and ideas and, and, and theories that are as rigorous and repeatable as physics. Well, guess what? <laughs> uh, no, you're not. Because, you know, physics Humans get in the way. Yeah. 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 Physics is the natural world. Uh, economics is is the psychological world and the human world. And so basically behavioral finance is sort of the the rebuttal to that or the addition to that to say this is sort of finance or economics that accounts for the silliness uh, and the emotionality of human behavior. Gotcha. Are there are there a couple of ways that are most prevalent and how we behave inappropriately as investors? Yeah. So I talked about these in the in the other book you you mentioned the behavioral investor. There's like two hundred and something documented psychological. Okay, we don't have time uh, to go through those today. No, yes, no, we're going to go through them one by one. No. So, you know, we, we took that 200 and boiled it down to sort of four meta biases though. Uh, the first is ego, which is sort of overconfidence. Okay. We have emotion, which is just what it sounds like sort of thinking with your, your heart and not your head. Right. Uh, the third is conservatism, which is our tendency to not want to take risk and, and to be loss averse and risk averse. Uh, and to be comfortable with things we're familiar with. Uh, and then the final one is attention, which is our tendency to confuse things that are loud with things that are likely. So effectively, you know, thinking that what we see on the evening news is going to be consequential to our portfolio the next day. Yeah. Well, and we don't do very well with probabilities. We do a lot more. No, with, no, we no. do a lot more with the headline. And, uh, you know, I, I think you mentioned the the, the shark attack Um as opposed to the, the the high probability event that yeah. uh, that um, that we that we don't pay attention to, um, yes, yeah. So I I mean I think the one that I see a lot is uh, confirmation bias, and I'm sorry to say that wealth advisors aren't immune to some of these as well, because <laughs> um, I just think about my own life. I mean I do tend to read more stuff that supports my thesis on the way the world works, sure, particularly with investing and. Uh, you know, so I, I read guys like Larry Swedro and Cliff Asness and Rob Arnott and, you know, Charles Ellis. And, and these are guys that believe in relatively efficient markets and these factors that we talk about on the show occasionally that we tilt mm -hmm. to. And, you know, maybe, maybe I need to open my horizons and look at counterfactuals as well, other writers and speakers and authors. So, I mean, we're not, you know, professionals, we're not immune to this either in terms of, of confirmation. No, no, we're not. So there's a couple of interesting facts. So uh, Ohio State did a study a few years back that that had people read, uh, read and watch like political discourse. 
And they found that people spend about 40% more time on the political text that was more consistent with their own political leanings. So we sort of skim over the other guy's ideas, right. but really go deep, you know, on the on the things that are already in agreement with what we believe. And that's a that's a universal problem, as you've said. Yeah. The other one that I just anecdotally see a lot are are the attractiveness of stories or narrative. <clears throat> you know, we always have a narrative. Like right now, it's, you know, it's inflation or um, you know, higher taxes or inflation or things that we, and, and we think that oftentimes they're, they're actionable. Any thoughts on the impact of stories and how powerful stories are as opposed to probabilities? Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's fascinating. There's a couple of pieces of research I'd, I'd draw your listeners to. One was uh, research out of Princeton that, that hooked people up to fMRI. So like a brain scan and it showed two people telling stories. So let's just say it's me and you, right? So we're sitting across from each other. They do a brain scan of Jeff, a brain scan of Daniel, like pre-story. Our brains look different, right? Like we're, we're doing different things. We're thinking in different directions. But when you start to tell me a story and you look at our brain scans, they're identical ah. because they match up, right? They match up. So that's the, that's the power of a story. It's sort of, it's, it's sort of a Trojan horse that can sneak in all sorts of information that we're not very critical of because it seems cohesive, like it's part of a narrative. So it's great for watching a movie and suspending disbelief, but we got to be careful not to let stories sort of dictate the way that we invest because there's always a story, right? Yeah. I mean, there's always a narrative and they're usually negative. Right. Well, and, and again, it's, it's, it's back to this, uh, the brain taking shortcuts. So instead of doing the system two analysis, the story is more appealing to us yes, right? in, in some ways. Yeah. So let's talk a moment about uh, an anecdote to being um, uh, not a behavioral investor, but being in a behavioral investor. And one of the things that you've written a lot about is um, goals-based investing. So mm -hmm. talk to me a little bit about um, what are the benefits of being goals-focused as opposed to, um, I don't know, narrative-focused or news-focused or – whatever the whatever the opposite of that would be yeah so i mean it's it's entirely consistent with the the name of your your podcast right it's about money and meaning that's what goals based investing is all about and so instead of attending again to these externalities of you know what's uh what's the economy going to do i'm going to think about what what's my personal economy going to do what's the personal rate of return that i need not how can I, you know, grab onto some some rate of return that's outside of me. So it's very simple, but very powerful. And that's true of a lot of behavioral investing uh, principles. So uh, one study found that people simply naming their goals, right? So working with a, pl a planner and sort of naming their goals had the effect of making them three times less likely to go to cash uh, in in the great financial crisis, which we know, of course, you know, quickly turned around and we were out of it and off to new all time highs. If you, if you stayed the course, uh, we also know um, there's one of my favorite studies had people look at a picture of their children uh, before making a decision with their money and found that they were more than twice as likely to to save and invest if they if they were primed with this picture of their children for just five seconds. So there's a lot of evidence to suggest that making it personal, tying those dollars to the things that you value 
um, can can bring about a lot of positive behavior. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, another another Nick Murray quote is, you know, outperformance is not a financial goal. But, right. You know, but endowing your children with a quality education, you know, uh, living independently and with dignity and independence is a is a goal. You know, leaving a meaningful legacy is a goal. But, you know, outperforming your neighbor <laughs> is not is not a goal. Uh, yeah. You know, when, when we look at fund flows. Right. So how much money was coming into and out of stocks from from 07 to 11? Almost every fight, almost every sort of equity stock vehicle had negative fund flows, right? This is the great financial crisis. People are pulling money out. They're not putting money in. There was one place where we had positive flows and it was college savings accounts. It was 529. Interesting. Yeah. And then when when you look at the reasons for that, it's because of what you just talked about, right? People, even in that moment of fear, they were still able to say, dang it, like I'm sending this kid to college, right? Like I love this kid. I'm going to send him to college. And that, that yes, that meaning was enough to help them overcome the fear where in other accounts, they didn't have that same meaning and, and they were succumbed to it. Right, right. Yeah. So you wrote a, a paper about goals-based investing recently. I, I assumed you were the author. It was on the, it was an Orion product, but it looked like I your, was, your I fingerprints was. were all over it. Um, yeah. But you talk a little bit about martial arts and how investing is like martial arts. Yeah. So it's the difference between um, sort of trying to fight back against a punch and then rolling with a punch. So my father-in-law is a black belt. He's a martial artist, which ensures that I treat his daughter very well. And so <laughs> one of the, you know, one of the things that, that he taught me is how you sort of roll with that resistance and roll with that other person's energy rather than trying to meet force for force. And so uh, that's one of the things that I think goals-based investing allows us to do. Yeah. Yeah. And, and one of the things, I mean, no one wants to be preached to about behavioral investing. And, you know, I mean, I think you have a book about you're not so smart. Yeah, you're uh, not that great. You're not yeah. that great. Yeah. And, and, it's, mm-hmm. and, and it's, I know it's tongue in cheek in the sense that we all are human. We all have these. Uh, so it's not unique to, to, the, to, the, to the reader. It's, you know, the writer has them too. We just have to be aware of them. Um, and so some of these techniques or strategies or uh, philosophies around how you do planning or how you do behavioral coaching is really a way um, to be aware. It's, it's a lot about awareness as much. Uh, but, you know, uh, Dr. Kahneman, who obviously Nobel Prize in behavioral economics indicated that, you know, even though I've studied this my whole life, I still make these mistakes. So education yeah. is obviously not enough. Uh, it, 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 it's a beginning, but it's not enough. Uh, you talked a little bit about uh, tying it to a goal. Uh, you've also written a little bit about mental accounting and the buckets. Can you talk a little bit about what you meant when you were talking about um, another technique that can help you invest um, more rationally as opposed to emotionally in terms of buckets. Yeah, so g- kind of kind of going with your going with your larger point and going back to our martial arts metaphor here, um, it's always easier to sort of roll with a human tendency than to try to fight against it, right? So uh, is it is it rational, strictly speaking? that I'm more likely to save money if I am reminded of my children than if in, in a, you know, control condition, it is not right. But, but will I take it? You know, yes, absolutely. Will will I use that to my advantage? Yes, absolutely. So mental accounting or bucketing is another example of this. 
right? So uh, mental accounting is, is just what it sounds like. We, we have this money and we sort of know that even though money is fungible, we create these mental pots for it. And we go, okay, well, this is our trip to the Bahamas fund and this is the mortgage and this is, you know, whatever, Susie's college fund. And so the way that we account for that money uh, is, is very influential in the ways in which we save, invest, and spend it. Uh, the U.S. government even found this out. If you, if you remember uh, the, the great financial crisis, again, was sort of the, the end of the W. Bush era and the beginning of the Obama era. So we had two different administrations, um, both giving out very generous, uh, very generous incentives to, to the U.S. Uh, investing public. And what they found is that what you called it mattered, right? Yeah. If you framing. call it, yeah. yeah, framing. If you if you call it a a rebate, what do people do with the rebate? Well, they they save it. If you call it a bonus, what do people do with it? Well, they buy houses and cars and TVs and computers, right? So, the, just the by way the way it was you, named. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So the the way that you name your money, the way that you account for it matters. So what we do with a bucketing strategy is effectively uh, we create a bucket called a safety bucket, right? So people have um, people have multiple simultaneous risk preferences, right? People buy insurance policies, but the same people buy lottery tickets. Right. So we, right. you know, we 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 have this desire on the one hand to not be on the street. And that's why we buy insurance policies. But we also want to, you know, drive a fast car and live in a big house. And so we uh, we, you know, buy lottery tickets too. what a bucketing strategy allows us to do is take a portion of that client's money and say, hey, uh, here's whatever two years worth of safety assets. Even if the market gets choppy, you're going to be fine. So you don't have to worry right. about it. Right. And then simultaneously take some small portion of that wealth and say, we're going to get really aggressive with this. We're going to buy individual stocks. We're going to invest in, you know, venture capital or, um, you know, angel investing type stuff. Right, right. And that's fine too. So it's just being intentional about what you call it, gotcha. which seems like a small thing, but it's actually quite a big thing. It is. Okay. Very, very, very cool. So let's, let's, um, I'd, I'd love to just ask one more question on this, and then I want to run uh, to the, to the last part about how we, as, as advisors, coach clients a little bit. Um, but, um, you know, we talked about the bucketing. We talked about the, the um, you know, trying to use our behavior for us instead of against us. Um, and so, in, in uh, again, one of the two, I get them mixed together, but we talked, you talk a lot about rules-based, having, hmm. having a rules-based approach. And I talk on the show all the time about process instead of outcomes. And, you know, the last show I did was actually on our investment process. So tell me a little bit about the benefits of having a rules-based approach um, versus other methods. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a, there's a couple of, uh, a couple of advantages. Uh, one is that it's cheaper, right? So a rules-based approach um, says, here's these timeless principles I'm not going to reinvent the wheel, right? Like you talked about factor tilts, like you tilt, it sounds like, right. it sounds like you tilt your, your portfolios in, in the direction of things like, you know, value or size or momentum or, you know, whatever you're you looking it. at yep. quality, correct, right? 
The reason that you do this, presumably, is because there's hundreds of years of evidence that it works, right? right? There's hundreds of years of evidence that it works. So you don't have to spend the time, energy, et cetera, that you pass on to your clients, right? That that cost right. of, of trying to research what's these, this year's hottest factor or what's going to work this year. You go, we've got some timeless wisdom here. Let's just stick with it. Right. So one thing is that it's it's cheaper and that that matters in investing because, you know, uh, the more you're spending. Right. Of course, all of that er erodes your returns. Right. Uh, and then the second thing is it's just easier. It's simpler and it's easier to adhere to. Right. So we find that uh uh, in, in one of my books, now I'm confusing my books. I, I, I honestly don't remember which one it was. But in one of my books, I looked at uh, a meta-analysis. So this is a study of all the studies on rules-based decision-making versus uh, discretionary decision, you know, like human judgment, basically. Right. right. And it was over 200 studies. It's everything from stock picking to, you know, seeing who should get paroled and everything in between. 94% of the time, simple rules beat human judgment yeah. or excuse me, beat or equaled. Right. Right. And so you're able to get a superior result in a fraction of the time at a fraction of the cost. It's just, it makes a lot of sense right. to just have some best practices you adhere to. Yeah. Well, and then rebalancing is like that, right? So nobody yeah. wants to buy stocks when they're down 30%, but if you have a rebalancing rule, you'll be buying stocks when they're down 30%, which is when they have the most the highest expected return. But behaviorally, yeah. that's hard as heck to do. I mean, nobody wants to buy stocks when they're down 30%. But the right. rules-based approach helps you do things like that. So, mm -hmm. so the rules matter. Uh, are there, is it possible that we should make occasionally irrational decisions that feel right? Yeah, like uh, I'll give I'll give a personal example. Um, you know, I, I so I think the answer is yes. Um, because what we're looking for here is not the spreadsheet optimal. It's the utility. The, we're not looking at the mathematic utility. Yeah, we're not looking at sort of economic utility, mathematical utility. Right. We're looking at psychological utility. So a couple of years ago, my wife and I paid our house off, right? right. So um, any, any financial professional, you know, I'm 40, I just turned 42. Like any financial professional would say that was a stupid move, right? Like there's there's no way you should you should take all that money and pay off a house when you could put that money to work in the markets. That that would be sort of the mathematical case. But for me, as sort of a risk averse, loss averse, um, emotional investor, right? Like again, like Dr. Kahneman, right. I've written all these books. It doesn't mean I'm good at it, right? Um, so. So for me, that was enormous peace of mind to just be able to say, okay, like this can't be taken away from me. Like my kids will never be cold, right? Right, right, <laughs> you know, right. This is, yeah. This, yeah. Is a, this is a nice base. This is sort of a safety bucket for me yeah. to say, okay, now I can take some risk with the rest of my assets. Right. So, you know, does it make sense in, at a time when you can get 2% 30-year mortgage on your house to, to pay your house off? Probably not mathematically, but if that's what it takes for you personally to to take the appropriate level of risk with the rest of your assets, then it might make total sense. Right. And that's where an advisor can be a, a great guy. Yeah, the pe the peace of mind. Yeah, what what uh, Mitch Anthony calls return on life. 
uh, yeah. you know, matters as much as return on investment. So, yeah, right. well, th- well, thanks for sharing that. I, I want to just, as we get ready to wrap up here in a few minutes, I did want to delve into something I know you've been working on, and, and because we use Orion's tools, so I'm very familiar with some of the innovation that you uh, have your fingerprints on there. Um, so many years ago, um, I, I used a, a software uh, vehicle, a product, and the principal always said, look, the way our industry works is we go out and we ask people their maximum tolerance for pain, and then we build a portfolio where they're virtually guaranteed to experience that level of pain. Whether right. they needed that level of pain or not to meet their goals was irrelevant. We asked them a series of just simple questions, gave them a pie chart and stuck their portfolio there because they decided they could take that level of pain. So right. that's risk tolerance. You know, Larry Swedro talks a lot about, you know, you should look at the need, you know, how much return you need to meet your goals. That should be an input to the right yeah. allocation. Your willingness to take risk, which I guess is this risk tolerance, and then your ability, I guess what some people call capacity to take risk. I think you've gone a little further on this with some of the things that you've been doing. So Tell me a little bit about the three or four types of risk that you are working with Orion and helping advisors like me measure for our clients. Yeah. So you've set up up the first two very nicely, right? So risk capacity is your ability to take risk based on, you know, what your ambitions are, you know, the, the size of your goals, your age, your level of wealth, you know, all else being equal, Warren Buffett can afford to take more risk than I can, right? So like he has, right. even if- Not going to change right? his life, yeah. Yeah, right. He has greater risk capacity than I do. And, and, and I have greater risk capacity than people, you know, who are older than me at my same level of wealth and things like that, right? right? So risk capacity is that, that first bucket you talked about. Risk tolerance is your willingness to make these trade-offs between risk and reward in a cold emotional state. Right. So if I'm your client and I'm having a great day and the market's been up for 10 years and I come into your office and you say, what do you think, Daniel? And I go, yeah, give me some risk, bud. You know, right. Like, right. right. Give me some risk. Yeah, that sounds great because I'm feeling good. Right. Right. But we measure risk composure, which okay. is this third sort of dynamic element, which is how likely that person is to become hot. Right. To become emotional and have that emotionality taint or color that risk tolerance. So we're measuring, you know, how do you think about in a cold emotional state, how likely are you to break out of that cold emotional state and become hot-headed about it? And then finally, how much, you know, can you afford to take just from a capacity perspective? So I'll give you a very topical example, right? We're about whatever it is now, 16, 18 months into this COVID pandemic here. And in March of 2020, a large subset of the American investing public was calling up their advisors or opening up their accounts and liquidating or becoming very, very conservative. Now, most of those people, if you would ask them, are you doing what you should here? Like, is this a smart move? They would say, no, that's risk tolerance. They know that's not, they know they're supposed to be long-term. They know they're not supposed to mess with it. But the risk composure, which is the emotional piece, said, I don't care what your rules are, right? I mean, it's the same, it's the same way that after I've been, I told you I've been traveling a lot, right? When I'm two weeks into a trip and 
I'm tired and I miss my family and I'm walking to the airport and I smell a Cinnabon. Like <laughs> you're weak, you know, it's going down. Like, right. You know, and if you ask me, you know, Hey, Daniel, is this Cinnabon consistent with your fitness goals? I would be like, well, no, <laughs> but yeah, right. I'm going to eat the darn thing. Right. Cause I'm, you know, you're I'm weak. Just, you're run down. I'm weak. Yeah. Right. So this is, this is why we think it's important to measure all three dimensions because there's a huge gap between knowing the right thing to do and actually doing the right thing. And by measuring composure, we begin to get at that. Gotcha. Well, and, in, and so let me just finish the circle on this. So in addition to those three, would you not still also look at the goals and see, is this inconsistent with the rate of return that you need to earn to meet your goals? So something oh. you've got to make a compromise. Let's talk about the yeah. compromise. Yeah, yeah, hundred, hundred percent. So you know, some of these goals are more um, are are more movable than others. Or, excuse right. me, some of these dimensions of risk are more movable than others, right? So if you look at something like risk capacity, um, I could come in with a good income, you know, a number of years till retirement, and have low risk capacity. Cause I want to live in a 10,000 yeah, square foot goes house. To, and, yeah. It goes large. Yeah. Right. And drive a, you know, drive a legion of Lamborghinis or whatever. So right. you could, you right. know, you could say, Hey, uh, <laughs> you yeah. know, maybe we dial this back a little bit and you're going to be on track. So yeah, some, some of those levers are easier to push than others. Yeah. Well, and, th and that gets back to what I mentioned about your quote from the book about you have to take some risk to meet. Yeah. I mean, most people have to accept some level of uncertainty to meet their financial goals. Um, I sure. mean, most of it just haven't saved enough. We have to access the capital market. Yeah. So, well, this has been really, really fascinating. I really appreciate your, your spending some time on this. I've, like I said, I've been a big follower of your work and, and will continue to do so, especially now that, you know, you are, you are, um, um, playing a big part in, in one of our partners, one of our, our partners. Yeah. So that's, that's, that's great. So to wrap up, I, I know you're really active in the community sharing uh, your information. So how can people find Daniel if they want to learn more about you and what you got cooking and, and any projects you're working on? Yeah, the, the two best ways are to, this will be very meta. I'll recommend my podcast within your please, podcast. Oh, please do. Yeah, yeah. yeah I listen to yeah, it and, I have and think a, it's terrific. I have a podcast. Yeah, I have a podcast called Standard Deviations that I'd encourage everyone to check out. And then um, the book, the two books, I think The Laws of Wealth and The Behavioral Investor, I think especially for, for end investors, the laws of wealth is an especially good place to start. So, okay, so check out the podcast and read the laws of wealth. Yeah, so the, the podcast, just to repeat, is called The Standard Deviation or Standard mm -hmm. Deviations. Standard Deviations, Standard yes. Deviations, and you can find it on all the normal platforms, yeah, yeah. I'm sure. And then, uh -huh. and then The Laws of Wealth, for those of you that hey. are on screen here. Is. I don't know. And, uh, and the behavioral investor. Well, Daniel, thanks again. I really appreciate it. I, I, I owe you, uh, since you're not that far away, I, I owe you a, a, a nice lunch or dinner at some point, uh, and, right. and probably a lot more, but I really appreciate it. Thank you for, for being with us today and audience. Thank you again for joining us for the money and meaning show. Uh, we hope you found this content useful. If you found it, uh, useful, please check us out on uh, the various platforms. You can also, uh, check us out at money and meaning at tanagrowth.com. Thanks so much and have a great day. Thank you for listening to the Money and Meaning Show with Jeff Bernier, a show dedicated to help you gain the confidence and freedom to lead a life of personal significance and help you get your actions and resources in alignment with what matters most. We would love to hear from you. If you have any questions for Jeff or comments on the show, feel free to reach out to us at moneyandmeaning at tandemgrowth.com. Or you can find us on the web at www.tandemgrowth.com.
Jeff Bernier is the President and Chief Investment Officer at Tandem Growth Financial Advisors, LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor. This show is a production of Tandem Growth Financial Advisors, LLC. All information discussed is general in nature, is provided for informational purposes only, and should not be construed as specific financial, legal, or tax advice. Listeners should consult an attorney or tax professional regarding their specific legal or tax situation. Listeners should not rely on the content of this podcast as the basis for any investment decisions. A professional advisor should be consulted and or independent due diligence should be conducted before implementing anything discussed in this show. While information presented is believed to be factual and up-to-date, Tandem Growth Financial Advisors, LLC, does not guarantee its accuracy and it should not be regarded as a complete analysis of the subjects discussed. Tandem Growth Financial Advisors, LLC, does not make any representations or warranties as to the accuracy, timeliness, suitability, completeness, or relevance of any information prepared by any unaffiliated third party, such as guests on the podcast, and takes no responsibility for the same.